You're listening to Pim Talk, the product marketing podcast, brought to you by InRiver. Welcome to PIM Talk, the podcast for product marketers, merchandisers, and PIM professionals. And every second Tuesday, we come together to share knowledge, experiences, and challenges to be able to create even better product stories. Maybe you're wondering what PIM is. PIM is a software that is all about managing all product marketing information in one place to create a rich customer experience in all channels and shorten time to market. And if you're new to PIM, check out our first episode, What is PIM? I'm your host, Thomas Schwabberg. I'm the creative director at InRiver, and we want to do this podcast for you and with you. So please contact us and tell us what topics you would like us to cover, what guests you would like to have on the show, or maybe you want to contribute in any way. So you can email us at pimtalk at inriver.com or send a message on Twitter at pimtalkpodcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on sin. And not just any sins, but the seven deadly digital sins of manufacturing. So let's dig into it and start with the talk. Today I'm really glad to have Andy from Antara on the show. So uh, welcome, Andy. Thank you, Thomas. It's great to be here. So maybe you could just start telling us a little bit about who you are and um, what you do at Antara. Sure. Well, my name is Andy Didick, and I am the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Intara. Intara is a digital agency that is full service and heavily focused on manufacturers and distributors, among other industries. Um, we manage everything from strategy and consulting through implementations of very complex integrations, certainly product information management, all the way through uh, e-commerce systems, uh, website deployments, multilingual sites, and the like. So we're pretty heavily involved with this industry and have been focusing on it for the past 10 plus years. And the topping for the day here, as we heard, was the seven deadly digital sins of manufacturing and distributors. I mean, that sounds pretty serious. How, how did you, you know, encounter this topic? Because I know we have done a webinar on the same subject before, but this is a kind of a retake of it. So that's a great question. So in, in all of our years of consulting with manufacturers and distributors, helping them with digital transformation and moving from uh, sort of the beginning places of realizing that this digital thing is real and we don't just need to take a look at it, but we need to actually restructure our business around it. Um, we found ourselves solving for the same problems over and over and over again. And um, I promise, Thomas, this will be the first and only time I'll get theological on the show, but we're using a theological term, which is sin. And sin, by definition, by most theologians, simply means something that separates you from the, from the divine being you're having an interaction with. Separation is key. Uh, and when we, we talk about sin, certainly it's fun, it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek here, but, but the reality is that these sins that manufacturers and distributors 
distributors commit really do separate them from being able to take the next steps in digital transformation and separate them from their customers, their clients, and even um, broader industry organizations and prevent them from uh, really becoming all that they can be in the new digital age. So that's how this came about. And uh, the, the structure of seven, I mean, that was just convenient, but I'm looking forward to getting into them with you. Yeah, and I'm excited. And, you know, I've actually been studying a few years theology at the university and also done some podcasting at the similar topics as well. So I'm pretty, you know, this is my arena, more or less. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to get starting. So let's start with the first sin. The seven deadly digital sins. Overconfidence. You have a great sales team, but they need digital support. So Gartner and Forrester and other research organizations have been all over this. Um, and I think one of the most compelling statistics is that 70% of B2B customers don't trust that the companies they do business with understand their needs. And they're not going to interact with a salesperson that they don't feel understands their needs. Um, a lot of manufacturers and distributors, it's an older um, school industry in some ways, especially in the United States. And people feel that, hey, we've got these relationships we've had for 25 or 30 years. And that's the only thing that we need in order to uh, be successful in this space. And the, the demographics are, are simply changing. Um, in two years, 50% of workers, of all workers, will be considered millennials. And they definitely do have different preferences on how they interact with people. And it's not just uh, it's not just millennials, Thomas. It's everyone who's been impacted by digital um, tends to want to buy online, um, especially when they know what it is that they're going to buy rather than going through a person. They don't want to pick up the phone and call anyone. So when a manufacturer or a distributor feels, you know what, we've got the salespeople, we've got our relationships, that's all we need. That's definitely a sin that they're committing um, in overconfidence that's preventing them from realizing the most and prioritizing their digital channels. Um, we know, for example, uh, also from Gartner and Vitalsource that 83% of B2B buyers are accessing digital channels even late in the sales funnel. So it's not just to get awareness about the products, it's also to validate their salesperson's claims and to continue that learning process throughout the entire buying cycle. And, and quite simply, not prioritizing this digital channel that clearly everyone is using is a huge sin that can keep you away from progress and from realizing the profitability that you need as a manufacturer or distributor. Sounds like that is a kind of a, a big transformation to make as a company. If you have your sales staff and they have been what you have leaned on for many years and, and uh, yeah, you have had those relationships as a, as a basis for many years and, and things are changing. That's right. So what can you do in such a situation? Is there any way to be saved? Well, to, to in order to save yourself from the sin, um, this is really something that has to start from the top down. Because this is, uh, notice that nothing about saving you from this sin has to do with, do I have the right technology? And, and even is my data correct? This is a mind shift of, we know that our customers need to understand and use the digital channel. That's what their preference is. So we need to prioritize our investments there. And it's not that we don't want to invest in our salespeople. It's the opposite. We want to automate the routine tasks that they have so that the salespeople can do higher order things and things that are of greater importance to the customer, like innovating for them. So putting programs in place around prioritizing digital content is a great place to start. And, uh, and also just having a mind shift from the top down of this is the most important thing that we can do is enable this digital channel so that everyone else's jobs can be elevated is the other part of that. The seven deadly digital sins. 
Vanity. Looking for external expert help is not a weakness. It can actually lead you to success. The next digital sin is vanity. Uh, Forcing your staff to build everything in-house versus outsourcing. And this one's going to raise a lot of, of, or it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers or raise hackles, whatever the right expression is for where you are um, among manufacturers and distributors listening to this. Because um, almost almost 100% of the manufacturers and distributors we speak to, um, they have grown out of doing things themselves, bootstrapping initiatives. If something was told that it couldn't be done to them, they figured out a way to do it internally on limited resources. And it's a real point of pride or, or vanity. Um, and the, the challenge is that when it comes to digital, manufacturers and distributors have to ask themselves, is this really an expertise that we want to build in-house and need in-house? Or is this particular technology moving so quickly, we're going to do better off to work with someone who's an expert in this field? Um, 80% of companies that uh, were surveyed by AdAge mentioned that they're increasing their digital marketing budgets to hire talent to meet the growing need for digital expertise. 80% of companies already are already saying, hey, this moves too fast. We need some expertise in-house, but we need some relationships with experts from the outside. Manufacturers and distributors, we found, typically are very vain in this regard, and they've got an IT team that they know can build anything. Um, and you know what? They, they usually can. Without a doubt, they're full of brilliant people. But doing it quickly and doing it in a way that is taking into account the needs of the entire organization strategically, and also where the market is going, is it scalable? Um, those are challenges where we see bringing in outside experts can really help to benefit things. What is the pros and cons here? I mean, if... Uh... Well, the in-house team, certainly you, you have some advantages there, right? There's a perception at least of of having benefits around them, understanding your business, understanding your culture. They're there, they're right down the hallway. Um, they're able to, when you ask jump, they say how high, they're ready to go. And these folks are, are typically also long tenured within IT and, and that comes with um, certainly a lot of advantages. The, the challenges with it though that we've seen is again, um, can they be experts in every technology that your business needs to move forward as a manufacturer? These things pop up. They've got a life cycle of, of anywhere between um, three years to 15 years. It really depends. And there are usually core system rewrites with software that happen uh, every couple of years that require a lot of training and dedicated time and that sort of thing. Um, typically with within in-house organizations, you're seeing uh, more uh, of a expert team of generalists rather than very specific specialists in key technologies, depending on your size. Um, and they're also pulled in a lot of directions. So when you have customer-facing initiatives as a manufacturer, particularly as a, as a marketer, and I know we're not talking about consumers here, we're usually talking about distributors, those things will be deprioritized very frequently in favor of uh, key things like is our ERP system up and running and other things that those internal IT teams really need to be focusing on instead. So with external experts, you have, you know, there are some challenges there, right? There's there's cost if you're not used to working with an outside agency. There are challenges in learning to manage that. But the upsides are you have experts that have have you're able to take advantage of the mistakes they've made with other customers and the mistakes they've seen with other customers. You get that collective knowledge. They're also dedicated in a services environment to being able to start right away and move with you quickly. Um, I could We could do an entire podcast on picking a right partner, of course. Yeah, exactly. But to go into this, I mean, if you have worked 
a long time internally. Uh, you have the knowledge, you have built your systems, and you're going to bring in an, an outside partner. How do you qualify that? Do you have some key things that, I mean, you should look at bringing someone into your organization and helping you out? Absolutely. Uh, and certainly, you know, full disclosure coming from my side on the agency side, these are questions that we typically, we do welcome and they're important um, because they separate a good relationship from a bad one. And what you're looking for when you're looking to qualify an outside expert certainly is experience. Um, it's similar to to heart surgery or any other really critical thing that you're looking to have done medically. Uh, you don't want to be the first patient that, that this surgeon has operated on. Um, you want to make sure they've got experience doing things for similar organizations. It's not always a fair question to say, uh, have you done this specific integration on this specific version to this other specific thing? Uh, because sometimes that's never been done before, or there's not enough volume where an agency could be expected to do that. But in general, have you done the have you done these integrations? Do you want understand our industry? Do you know what it's like to sell physical goods through a, a geographically distributed sales force uh, across distribution um, under the economic pressures that we have? Those types of questions are, are important. Um, and then secondly, understanding, are, are they good listeners? Are they coming in with an established process for this is how we, we gather the requirements and ensure that this is even the right solution for you to pursue? Um, one of the most valuable things in having an outside consultancy is that they can see the forest for the trees and they can help you take an outside perspective on things. Um, we put our money where our mouth is with that as a company too. And, and um, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that when tasked with rebranding our, our agency or looking at our positioning within the market. Uh, we tried several times and I was a key part of that and failed to do that internally simply because it's very difficult to take an honest look at yourself. And so, you know, we're looking to an outside consultant for help with that. And I think that that's just in general, a best practice along among all companies is getting that outside perspective. And then um, finally, are they being are they being transparent with you? Um, there are a lot of clients that we will turn down if we feel that there is not a good potential fit, and they don't have their internal ducks in a row. Maybe they're they're too mired in their sins to be saved. They're too far gone, and we know that that until they change some things internally, they're not going to be successful with an outside agency. So making sure that you've got a good transparent dialogue back and forth that's not based on on selling and on and on appearances, but it's based on really solving business challenges will go a long way towards making sure that your first engagement with an agency, if this is a sin you struggle with is one that can help save you and bring you out of vanity. Sounds like there can be salvation out there. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it's available. So let's see what the next sin will be. The seven deadly digital sins. Fear. Omnichannel is now. Your customers are waiting. The next deadly digital sin is fear, which is something we see all the time of ignoring omnichannel opportunities. I can't tell you how many times, Thomas, I've walked into uh, a manufacturer, and you see this more on the manufacturing than on the distribution side. Um, and the manufacturer is so afraid of upending the apple cart um, around their distributors, or sometimes vice versa, uh, that they're, they're afraid to try new technologies, and they are afraid to experiment with omnichannel uh, experiences for their clients, even though all of the data points us to that's what they need to do. Why is that? Well, quite frankly, it's it's biting the hand that feeds you is how it's perceived, right? That if if we if a manufacturer sells directly to a consumer, offers a new channel for their product data to be available, and even if they're not 
selling it or maybe creates a really great portal experience for product registration. Um, everything that, that invokes change invokes fear in the relationships of, well, it, it hasn't been this way before. Now it's this way. How am I, uh, how am I at risk here as an organization? And what we've seen is that the most progressive brands, whether they are in commodities-based manufacturing, like, I mean, nuts and bolts or, or uh, coal or oil or anything else, um, or they're a, a high-end brand like, like Nike or Lego or Crocs or any of these other groups, is they just say, forget it, we're going to move ahead and try things, knowing that if they, if they do if they do in some way lose a, a manufacturing or distribution relationship somewhere in there, it's never as bad as what they feel it is because technology has to move forward. And if we look at all of the data of um, particularly around this issue of omni-channel, which is, um, it's different than multi-channel. It's, it's not offering, uh, just offering your product on in-store and online and via phone, but it's finding ways to connect those experiences so that it, the consumer can hit um, or the buyer can hit those from various angles and have a similar experience. Think of it as like, no matter how you, uh, with your with your frequent flyer experience, no matter where you contact Delta, your information is always available to you. you they always know where you're flying, where you're going, whether you're calling on the phone or whether you're going through the app. Um, creating that experience for consumers is exactly where, uh, again, all the market data is pointing us to um, what people expect. And what buyers expect in the consumer space, they expect in the B2B space as well. And we know things are going that direction. And fear can prevent you from making decisions toward even experimenting in that regard, which is a real shame, because the most successful brands are headed in that direction. Do you have some cool examples of uh, what you can really do uh, omnichannel-wise? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the ones that, that comes to mind is, uh, is actually ordering pizza. Okay. Because th th that's something that we've seen a tremendous amount of innovation in. Now, we know that the listeners to this podcast are not manufacturing or distributing pizza, but, but use it as a great analog for... Yeah, we know that they eat pizza. Yes, we all eat pizza. We can't live without it, actually. No. Um, it's, it's a key. Yeah, it's one of the five essentials of life. I'm pretty sure pizza is number five on there. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> what's important, I mean, when you think about it, there are so many different ways where the makers of pizza are connecting with where and how people want to order them. Um, there was a pizza brand that created a pair of shoes that you could push a button on the shoes and a Bluetooth connection would order pizza to your home. Uh, there are, you know, it used to be in the beginning that that when you wanted a pizza, you had to go to a pizzeria, physical brick and mortar pizzeria with a brick oven, and you would go inside, you would order your pizza, you would consume it there, and then you would leave. Um, but as consumers, uh, as makers of pizza became more savvy, you can now order it, as I said, through through shoes. You can uh, you can tweet an emoji of a pizza and and order from um, certain retailers and uh, a mobile app, a website. They'll deliver it now, not just to your home with a physical address, but Domino's, of course, has those hotspots where, where they will deliver all over the country and loyalty programs that are very robust where they can track how much you've ordered, where it is, and when it's coming to you. And and those experiences are fun, yeah. right? They're they're enjoyable, and we all can relate to them. Um, but the reality is, is they are creating a very real expectation that B two B buyers have of where's my stuff, yeah. And once it gets ordered, wh where is it? Where is it in the process? Um, or if it's reverse logistics and a return, um, 
Where is it at? And what's the best way for me to reach someone? And if I call someone in customer service, are they going to have my customer information? Can I hit a portal on your site as the manufacturer and see what I've ordered the last 10 orders? Um, all of that is, is there at a part of this. Yeah, so if I can get the pizza delivered basically anywhere, why can't I get that spare part that I need right now that is so valuable for me in the situation? I mean, instead I have to, you know, try to find the right person to talk to and the right information and I need to wait for the delivery. I need to track the delivery or... That's yeah. a great example. Spare parts are, 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 especially for heavy machinery and equipment that's in the field where lost time is money. Um, there is a real correlation we're finding between innovative omni-channel experiences and gaining efficiencies that that save customers money. And that's a whole different value proposition than um, we're afraid to work directly with the buyer or the end user as a manufacturer because we don't want to upset the apple cart with the distributor. Because if you're not doing it, someone else will. It's probably going to be Amazon. And if it's not Amazon, uh, we all know it's, it's going to be someone else. So don't let fear stop you um, as a manufacturer or distributor from innovating in this space. Sometimes you've got to uh, ask for forgiveness rather than permission in order to move your business forward. Okay, so um, what can we do then to escape fear? I think that that finding a way to th this varies for everyone because it's easy for me on this great and venerable podcast to just say, "Hey, go change and don't worry about the consequences." Um, but as a consultant, that's one of the things we we typically are using data to help manufacturers and distributors figure out where is a a lower risk, uh, higher upside opportunity to upend the apple cart and to do some experimentation around this omni-channel experience. And there's two ways that you need to approach this to escape um, this sin. One of them is to look at it from the back end and data side. So are you even able to offer a, an omni-channel experience or is your back end systems or your back end systems too complex and not integrated enough to do that? That's one angle you can look at and start making progress towards this without disturbing anyone. And then the other side is uh, by using data and customer information on the front end is figuring out, well, what are the things that maybe we could sell direct or what features do we need on a portal that we're not offering now? And simply surveying your customers and getting that information together can be a great starting point um, to uh, explain to those that are concerned about the change look, we're getting real end user data that's saying we need to do these things. Maybe we don't need to do it all ourselves. Maybe we can do it together. But data helps drive great decisions and helps remove some of the emotion from, from the fear. All right, next sin. The seven deadly digital sins. Apathy. Maintaining consistent product data is important and creates value add opportunities. So the next digital sin that we often see with manufacturers and distributors is apathy, which is simply a lack of control of your digital brand. It's relying on someone else and trusting that someone else has as much invested in your brand and cares as much about, as much about representing it as you do. And we see this all the time, again, as a result of a trust in the human relationships in this business, where, hey, we take care of our dealers or the dealers say, we take care of this manufacturer, surely they have our best interest in mind, and they'll say it the way that we will. So we don't need to invest in our digital front door of our, our .com. We don't need to invest in a, in a back-end portal experience. We'll just, we'll just trust that everything's going to be okay. And, and it's, it's really a, you know, the apathy there that stops progress from happening in that regard. 
and one of the ways that you can see this really clearly, this is, uh, this is an example that I think is pretty ripe and understood in our industry, but uh, is one that is really useful to, to see an example of this apathy, is if you go to Amazon today and you look at baby wipes, which is something we can all in some way, shape, or form relate to using or understanding baby wipes. It's kind of a commodity thing. It may not seem like that big a deal to some, but to a certain population, it's a huge deal. Um, and you go and, and I'm going to pick on Pampers here, because if you go to Pampers website or you go to Amazon, look up Pampers baby wipes, We've been picking on them for two years with this example, and, and no one's changed anything about it. So I'm, I'm really curious about how this is working for them. But Pampers simply has a picture of their product, a couple of bullets about the, the product, and, and that's it on the Amazon page. They're relying on their brand to carry them through, and they're relying on Amazon representing their brand in a healthy way and on the consumer experiencing it in the best way possible in order to sell their product. Then it, if by turn you look at Amazon's uh, generic example of this product, um, it is an unbelievable contrast between one that takes care of their brand and one that does not. Uh, whereas Pampers has like four bullet points, Amazon has three or four written pages that are beautifully illustrated about every aspect of the product and what goes into it from the, the raw materials and manufacturing to the water source of the, the water supply that um, we're that goes into manufacturing the wipes to the botanicals to, I mean, everything that's in, in it. And now we are still talking diaper wipes here. So, as yes, I mean, yes. <laughs> we are talking about all of these pages with, with all of this beautiful information and videos and, and stuff. And we are still in the wipes section of the shop, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, we're not talking about a Jaguar here. We're talking about something you use to clean up a mess. And and yet, they have a huge investment in this experience. They have done all the right things where they've mined the questions down to uh, from the reviews where reviewers have written even things like, who are the babies that are in these beautiful photos? And they're, they're writing back, hey, the, these are real, these are babies of real Amazon employees using this wonderful product. And they are absolutely... The link to the Instagram account. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're eating Pampers lunch by all metrics uh, on this particular item. And if, if you can kill, uh, effectively kill one of the most venerable and respected brands in the baby care space with consumables simply by um, heavily investing in the branded experience like Amazon is, if you can do it with diaper wipes, what can you do if you've got something that's truly differentiated and truly innovative as a manufacturer or distributor? Um, but you can't do that if you have apathy, the sin of apathy, and you are not as committed to making that experience come to life online in a way that people can consume. Um, and that takes a lot of effort, uh, but it also takes some some certain disciplines that um, if you have apathy, are really hard to get implemented. Yeah, so if I have apathy, how can I get saved from my apathy? <laughs> Save me, Andy. <laughs> well, salvation has got to come from within, Thomas. Okay, uh, thanks. For all, all of our, all of our um, listeners out there, this is another area where, again, there are two sides to the story, right? Oftentimes, we find with manufacturers and distributors, there are... Um, there are back-end systems that limit their ability to innovate. There are so many manual processes and exceptions and business challenges that are in place that even if you wanted to create a fantastic experience, 
it's there's a lot of heavy lifting and manual spreadsheets and other things that are involved um, in order to make that happen. We'll talk about that a little bit going forward, how you can fix that. But then on the front end, it has to be a commitment to keeping your branded experience consistent across every channel. So that's got to come down to um, that covers all kinds of aspects of our consulting, everything from are you setting your pricing consistent consistently? Are you coming down on on partners that are not um, representing your brand correctly and giving you challenges like that? Uh, and do you understand the experiences that your competitors are putting in front of your customers and how those are different and where your biggest opportunities might be. So it does continually come down. We're looking at things digitally here and digital is always a blend between these backend technical things and this front end user experience that has to be taken into consideration. So saving yourself from apathy, it really starts with with giving a care about what it is that branded experience is. And then it comes down to uh, getting some help and prioritizing where you can make the most impact with the least amount of effort. You're listening to Pim Talk, the product marketing podcast. And after this short break, we're going to continue sinning or we're going to see how we can get saved from the sins the seven deadly digital sins of manufacturing. PIM stands for Product Information Management, and InRiver stands for PIM. Want to learn more about how your organization can benefit from PIM software? We've put together a free white paper where you can learn what you need to know about how your e-commerce platform can benefit from PIM. Go to www.pimtalk.com to download a free guide to help you better understand how PIM can work for you. That's www.pimtalk.com. The seven deadly digital sins. Indifference. Standards create efficiencies, lower costs, and make industry stakeholders happier. Our next digital sin is indifference. And indifference is a little bit different than apathy. Uh, partly because we just had to come up with a, a different adjective to use for, yeah, for exactly. it. <laughs> it needs to be seven. Right? Yeah, it's got to be seven. It's just six is imperfect, um, but seven is perfect. Yeah, so we'll, maybe we do. We need to get a cup of coffee later and talk theology. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I could showcase my ignorance. But in, in the digital world, what we're talking about here with indifference is a lack of product data standardization. And this is, this is that back-end part of the equation of... Uh, manufacturers and in particular and distributors as well have simply settled for um, waiting for the other party to demand something rather than standardizing it themselves um, and standardizing it as an organization when it comes to their product data. Um, and without those standards, product sales and marketing is information is often incomplete, it's inaccurate, it's inefficient, and that causes a real challenge. So specifically what I'm getting at here, Thomas, is that um, this is something that, that manufacturers and distributors really are going to have a hard time solving completely on their own. Most of them have some type of standard internally of we always call um, a part this way or we always, um, we always configure a SKU with these particular attributes so that we understand a naming convention. Uh, they have varying degrees of accuracy in their data, which we'll talk about later. Um, but we know that they're, they're, 
they understand the, the importance of standardization within their own entities. The challenges come and where this digital sin strikes hardest is in groups of manufacturers and distributors in the same industry that all use different naming conventions within themselves. So this causes extraordinary uh, difficulties when you're talking about thousands of SKUs that one might call a certain attribute one thing and one might call the same attribute something else makes it very difficult and who ultimately suffers in that product is the end user that's buying because they're going to not be able to compare apples to apples and they're not going to be able to discover the unique differentiating factor of, of your product or your service. And I guess that this is something that particularly painful for manufacturers and distributors. Uh, I mean, that has to interact with so many different touch points and other companies. Absolutely. So I'd, I'd like to talk about how to get saved here because this is important. Uh, <laughs> with We'd like to call out um, one of our partners that is doing a, a particularly great job with this. Um, you can imagine, Thomas, that um, one of the areas in which this is most important to standardize has got to be healthcare, where Absolutely. the difference in a term can mean um, something very different to a physician that's actually on the front lines using that product. And there are hundreds of thousands of SKUs that are involved in that industry and and scores of very large manufacturers and hundreds, if not thousands, of smaller manufacturers as well. And um, one of the ways that healthcare has gotten ahead of this is through an industry association called HIDA, and that's the Health Industry Distributors Association. Um, and they work with manufacturers and distributors to standardize this language across their uh, their different organizations. And they became a very early um, early adopter and and promoter of product information management and the importance of standardizing. And they, as a as a body, um, put together a cross functional team of manufacturers and distributors that meet on a monthly basis to help keep these standards updated. And they've come up with a set of twenty three uh, short descriptors and ninety three extended descriptors that need to be on all products for members within this industry association. So this is a a fantastic step forward in being able to both configure backend systems to have uh, efficiencies and to prevent errors and and costly issues with regulation compliance and other things on the front end experience of product consumption. Um, so Haida is doing a wonderful job of doing this. And if you want to get saved from the sin of indifference, this is something that uh, you'll need to look to a standards body as well or dedicate resources if you're a larger player in this space to starting that standards body and making it happen. Um, it really only takes effort in order to do this because it's in everyone's best interest and uh, change is hard, but we see this happen in the tech space and all, everywhere across the world that an investment here can bring huge returns in standardization. Yeah, and I think we see this in industry by industry, but it also takes time and uh, there comes new standards uh, over time as well. But just another question here. Um, do you have any customers within the health industry that you work with today? We certainly do, um, particularly on the, the front line. So health systems that are, are actually providing care. Um, our, our company specializes in health services as well. And we see similar challenges to the manufacturing and distribution side where um, even standardizing around things like physician credentialing and how is a physician directory put together if you've got a health system with 10,000 physicians that are providing care and uh, even down to what do you what do you call that provider do you call them a provider do you call them a physician do you call them a doctor well the answer is yes yes uh, but it depends on it depends on who the audience is as to when that language is appropriate so we see real 
real benefits here in standardization, regardless of whether it's uh, of where it's at on that spectrum from manufacturing distribution all the way down through service providers. Um, this is a lesson that all of them can learn. Well, I'm getting a bit tired here, so I don't know if we're going to skip the next one. The seven deadly digital sins. Laziness. Personalization can connect your brand to your customers. And that's what they're craving. <laughs> okay, I I got I just got it. I was like, wait, then I've, then I've got to go back because we said seven from the beginning. <laughs> We've only got six. <laughs> I see what you did there. So <laughs> the next deadly digital sin is laziness. And for laziness, I'm going to talk specifically to manufacturers for this segment. And distributors, you may want to close your ears because this may be upsetting to you um, if you've got sensitivities to where this industry is going. Uh, the big bad term in in this space, particularly for manufacturers, is this idea of disintermediation. And disintermediation is something that I know that uh, Johan Bostrom at In River talks about frequently in his conversations. It's not a word that I use that often, so maybe you could go in and explain it a little bit more. Absolutely. So in the context of manufacturing, simply what it means is that uh, when, you're, when you're a manufacturer, your traditional path to market is manufacturer to distributor to a salesperson on the floor. Uh, maybe that person is selling also to retail. So you've got an extra step in between. And then that person ultimately interacts with the customer at the end. And with the promise, you know, before digital, that made sense, right? It's like a pizzeria. You've got to go in to the, the pizzeria to get the pizza. Um, but what technology has enabled us to do, and indeed what all of the resource research is showing us is a preference of consumers in most instances is to go directly to the source of the most uh, trusted level of information, which 81% of the time, it's the manufacturer that people feel is the most trustworthy source of information. So disintermediation means uh, cutting out all of those steps in the middle, the intermediaries, in the interest of getting directly to the source of truth. And what you're finding is that um, everyone is fighting for a piece of the end user's time and attention because they're the most valuable ones making purchasing decisions. We know it's more complicated that with, with wholesale and distribution, these other things. But if you, um, we are seeing this happen in everything from, uh, in our customers, from firefighting equipment um, through consumer durables to mattresses, all the way across the board, that buyers, whether they're B2B or B2C, want to go directly to the most trustworthy source of information. If you're a manufacturer, you have an advantage here because you're already seen as the most trusted source of information. And if you are suffering from the sin of laziness and, and aren't willing to commit into that mode of communication, and also maybe it's combined with fear because you don't want to upset your distributors, someone else is going to step in and take advantage of that consumer's interest and that pattern of behavior, and they're going to eat your lunch. Again, it, it's probably going to be Amazon who's going to start there, but it's maybe a regional or local competitor as well. Yeah, because it's also about brand loyalty, but, but also taking care of that loyalty that might exist and, and communicate, as you say, directly with the customer being more engaged. Because, I mean, the other, on the other end, the, the retailers or so, they, they won't, you know, 
be standing there and waiting for you to go direct. I mean, they are doing their own white labeling, you know, stuff instead and are pointing into their brand and the benefits that they can, you know, put in there. So, I mean, it's um, a war almost, or it's a... Tug of war. Tug of war, yeah. Yes. That's what it is. <laughs> it's, it is a continual tug of war. And I think a good example of this, of of not just... Uh, it actually does come from a retailer, uh, an example of uh, combating and being saved from from laziness. And I think that we can all, it's easy to pick on retailers because this is a much more public arena than than some of the consulting clients that we have in the manufacturing and distribution space. Um, but again, the, the consumer experience that a retailer like Target is setting up for its consumers is something that is expected by the B2B buyer. And it's also something that Amazon and Granger are investing heavily in as well. So I think everybody or a lot of people are familiar with what Target has done in terms of personalization and creating a really great experience um, of adding value to that end user's experience, right? If, if I bought this, then I might also like this. And Amazon certainly is known for that. Um, <clears throat> and with Target, one of the ways that they they've taken that is they're using the data that's generated from all of the purchases in new ways in order to help generate predictive results. In their case, the most famous example is their pregnancy predictor, where okay. once they analyze someone's uh, buying behavior, they are able to predict with a scary high degree of certainty uh, whether or not that user is pregnant. That can be weird, right? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, exactly. There was a pretty famous case a couple of years ago where um, a dad opened uh, the mail and his daughter... Uh, you know, it said, hey, here's pregnancy coupons. And he's like, well, my daughter's not pregnant. And actually, she was. Uh, Target figured it out before he did. And uh, there are a couple of leading predictors with that. Um, unscented lotion, uh, prenatal vitamins, of course, if they're buying those things, you know, they, they come together and, and do that. And Target learned from that experience and has since made heavy investments in, um, you know, protecting privacy and doing those things. But the, the, that's a long story to say they revolve everything around a unique guest ID. And their guest ID is, is maintaining things that aren't only the purchasing behavior, but also their click path through the website and other really sophisticated things. Uh, and you see that, that Target did this. People are very familiar with that. But Granger is doing the exact same thing. And on a B2B space behind a locked you know, a jailed experience behind a firewall. Um, Granger is investing heavily in personalization and making sure that they're adding a ton of value um, as a distributor in this space to be able to disrupt things and make it happen. As a manufacturer, you have the power to do this too, even with end users, especially if you're doing things like handling warranty claims or registration or your salespeople or have direct client contact. So there, this is, is simply too large of an issue to get all of the different paths of salvation laid out for. But uh, some of the key things here to, to save yourself from this sin involve um, getting data and, and being able to store and use that data uh, everything from purchasing behavior to clickstream all the way down the line, um, generating personas about who's buying from you and where, mapping out a content strategy to support those personas, and then beginning to do things like create personalized content and other things that provide value to that end user so that yeah, you're leapfrogging the other folks that are doing that. And I think the last thing here that's important for me to mention, Thomas, is that uh, oftentimes we see even really sophisticated manufacturers and distributors that pay attention to this are paying attention to only things on the front end of the sales funnel and not working on personalizing the rest of the experience. So service, warranty, support, uh, product retirement, all of those things 
All of that can be personalized in a way that's providing value and is saving you from the sin of laziness. Yeah. I think some of these sins that you have talked about, it's basically very dramatic. I mean, it's uh, almost change or die. Absolutely. Um, we are seeing a tremendous amount of consolidation in the manufacturing space. We're seeing consolidation in the distributing space. And the winners and loser, losers, in most cases, it's very clear. The, uh, the winners are the ones that have the digital infrastructure in place to be able to pick up a new channel, be able to put things on Amazon, put things on eBay, put things um, through, through Granger, put things through whatever the next channel might be. Uh, and the losers are those that have lagged behind and not taken the investments in creating a digital infrastructure that supports change. There's one thing we can expect in this world. It is change. And in digital, uh, it, it, if it's not changing every day, then you better you better check because you're probably living in an analog world uh, and, and just mistaking it for digital. So um, it, it is absolutely change or die, and it is that dire. Even if you feel like you're in a slow-moving industry, uh, give me a call in a year and, and tell me how much things have changed because I guarantee you it's a lot more than you think it is right now. Now I think we only have one sin left. The seven deadly digital sins. Negligence. Incorrect data can cost you in more ways than one. This sin, uh, Thomas, might be the most the most pertinent to this show. So it wouldn't be an episode of the PIM Talk podcast if we weren't talking about product data management. And so the final sin is negligence, which is negligence of your product data and having bad product data management. So I've got a great statistics uh, a statistic for you here that over 80% of customers surveyed are not confident in their product data. And I can tell you this is different from my experience as a consultant in one way, which is when we walk into an organization, uh, I would say 80% that we walk into are very confident in their product data and they think that it's great. They say, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty good. It's in good shape. All right. And inevitably, I, I have to, you know, play the role of a therapist and, and break the news to them in the, in the right way, in a sensitive way that it's probably garbage. So the key thing here is if you're going to work in the digital age and take advantage of the pace of change. Machines are handling your data. Computers are handling your data. It's not people. And machines can't overlook most errors or things being inconsistent or something like uh, the in one product, you say it's the length, the height, and the width of the product dimensions. And in another, you say it's the length, the height, and the depth. Even though you've got maybe the correct measurements in there, the fact that they're labeled differently can create havoc in an e-commerce system or some other digitally based system of automation. And those errors are not exposed until you start getting into the discipline of product information management for an omni-channel experience or just to accelerate digital transformation. Um, so being negligent with the product data, it's a common thing. We see it everywhere. And no one believes that it's as bad as it is until we get in and start to feed it into systems uh, before um, they, they understand, hey, this, this really is at a very difficult place. So how do you save yourself from product data negligence? And, and of course, as I've said all along, it's a back-end and a front-end solution. It's a heart. It's a mind. It's a left brain. It's a right brain, however you want to couch it. Uh, but 
Brands need a central source of truth for their product data, particularly if you're in manufacturing and distribution. Product data is the lifeblood of your company. It's what people are buying from you or not buying from you. And it, it makes such a critical difference in all of your digital experiences. Um, think back to the baby wipes. Like You can have a great experience. Maybe you can talk about the source of the pristine water that goes into the baby wipes. But if you're consistently um, incorrect with your product data about how many wipes are in the package or um, shipping dimensions or weights or something else, um, you're going to lose customers, you're going to increase your returns, and you're going to have challenges scaling in any other channel. So the way the path to salvation here is clear. It, it certainly is using a digital system to centralize your product data. Now at Intara, we love the InRiver system. The platform gives us fantastic opportunities for manufacturers and distributors and retail to do just that. Um, You've got to, though, once you've centralized that data, use data transformation capabilities. So that data has to be not just centralized, but now it's got to be corrected, it's got to be enriched, and it's got to be approved by the right parties uh, that are there. Um, it's got You've got to set up automating workflows where I think a lot of times product information management, when we look at buyers today, they say, uh, well, I know I need this platform. I know I need this. I got to get this software in here and get the software configured. Um, and, and we almost immediately step in and correct that and say, it's not about the software. The software is very important, but the software enables a, a discipline uh, and a business process of product information management within your company. And that is something that has to change. That's a mindset um, that's critical to make this all work. And then certainly once you have those things in place, being able to regularly run audits on the quality and consistency of your data is another key part. We know uh, in, in River certainly enables a lot of those key things and um, it's, a, it's a key part of any organization moving forward in this space. Uh, so those are the, the that's a very short path to salvation when it comes to overcoming the sin of negligence with product uh, data management. And I know that Thomas, you've probably got uh, several hundred backlogged episodes with more information than I have here, um, but it is certainly key to our practice as well. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of things to you could dive deeper into, but I think it could be good, you know, to to end the the talk here with a, a short summary of how you can free your company from from all of these sins. So to sum up what we talked about today, uh, freeing your, your company from these seven sins requires a lot of different things. But in brief, um, freeing your, your companies from the sins of overconfidence uh, starts with taking a good hard look in the mirror and realizing that digital is the future and a key player on your sales team. Uh, and that you need to address digital as a component of sales, whether you're in manufacturing or distribution. From the sin of vanity, uh, it means being open to working with an outside expert, especially when it comes to digital transformation in the digital space, and that and that's okay, that we all need specialists in our lives to help, help us overcome things. Um, we look at overcoming the, the fear, uh, or the sin of fear, rather, um, simply looking at examples, taking inspiration from, from key brands, as I mentioned, whether they're in the commodity space or they're, they're significant brand players that have already done this and are continually doing this and innovating in the space. Omnichannel is here. Everybody wants it. You need to figure out where your place is to, uh, to help enable that for your customers. Um, overcoming apathy, it's important to maintain uh, consistent product data and creating value opportunities through that. Uh, indifference, you want to create standards within organizations. We talked about how important it is to reach out to your, your industry standards um, organization and talk about how PIM could be a part of everything that they're working on or start it yourself. Uh, 
freeing yourself from the sin of laziness. Uh, that's all about creating some personalization and taking charge of your branded experience. And then finally, when it comes to negligence and being freed from that sin, uh, really getting down into prioritizing, correcting your product data and creating a consistent product data, product data management experience within your organization is key. All of this starts with uh, a good, healthy assessment of where you are today and figuring out your goals of where you want to go tomorrow. Um, and it's a, it's a big journey, but the good news is, and the scary news is, a lot of folks are already pretty far down the field with these. So if you struggle with any of these, the best advice I can give is simply to get started. Yeah. And maybe a good way to start is to make confession. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Confession is the road to healing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Andy, where, where can you be found? I'd love to take questions from anyone that had them. Uh, the best way to hit me up is probably through LinkedIn, or they're certainly welcome to email me uh, at didik, that's D-I-D-Y-K, at intara.com. And Intara is N-T-A-R-A. Cool. Uh, will you attend the Pinpoint in Malmö in a few months? We're, we're still undecided about Malmö, but for the most important um, product information summit in North America, we will absolutely be there with bells on. And most definitely, uh, there is a chance meeting you on uh, Pinpoint Americas uh, this autumn. Oh, you know we'll be there, Thomas, without a doubt. Yeah, I know. Super. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was really interesting and, and fun. So uh, yeah, see you around. Thanks for having me, Thomas. It was my pleasure. So, where can you meet us at InRiver? Well, March and April is going to be busy months. Uh, we are doing a roadshow together with Microsoft about why make the move to the cloud in several locations. Uh, we are going to be at the Congress in Gothenburg, uh, March 7, as well as Etail Germany, March 7 and 8. We're going to join a panel at the Microsoft Pivot about uh, accelerated digital transformation in manufacturing. Uh, actually, I'm going to be there at the panel. Uh, also, uh, doing a breakfast meeting with the Concede in Malmö, March 14th. And then, of course, we have Pinpoint Summit 2019, the largest PIM event of the year, April 4 and 5th here in Malmö, Sweden. PIM Talk is going to be there. Uh, going to have around think three PIM Talks during the first day. We're going to try a new concept uh, with a silent PIM Talk. No, I'm not going to be silent all the time, but you will get earphones and you will be able to, to participate in an intimate setting where, where we can uh, yeah, have some fun together. And also on the second day, we're going to have a larger PIM Talk during lunch uh, that will be more lively. I uh, haven't really figured it out yet, but I think we can do something really fun with it. So I hope to see you there. Uh, another event that I'm really um, excited about is the Pinpoint Hackathon that will be held the night before Pinpoint. And here we invite our partner community, other people that are interested in building solutions upon the um, River technology, uh, the REST API, in context editing functionality in order to show that in a very short amount of time you can build really uh, fantastic things uh, with the River product marketing cloud platform and uh, the best solution will get to pitch pinpoint and we will also crown the winner at the gala dinner at uh, the evening so that's going to be great what else well we have trainings of course 
For business consultants and development, we have in Chicago, March 14th and 15th, and in Malmö, March 20th, 21. Uh, similar for the customers, uh, we also have the Learning Academy uh, coming up, and the next user training is in Malmö on March 13th. Thank you for listening. For feedback, tips and questions, you can email us at pimtalk at nirriver.com or message us at pimtalkpodcast at Twitter. Please, if you like the show, go into iTunes and give us a good review. And if you would like to see some behind-the-scenes material, bloopers and live streams, you can follow PimTalk on Instagram. See you again in two weeks. Bye. I want to hear now. Let's talk about him.